All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are uh, digging in in First Chronicles. You know, think about this. We're in our 10th chapter already of the historical books. Uh, let's do a quick summary, all right? Everything went bad. <laughs> they go into exile, and now they're free. And now Judah's coming back into the land. You throw in some Israelites, some Brits, some Levites. Uh, Levites, not Levites. <laughs> Those are pants. Uh, Levites, and then you have uh, temple servants, I wanted to combine gatekeepers and temple servants, the temple keepers. Uh, and so you have all these people coming back in, and here's what they're supposed to do. Reinstate, okay, you ready for this? Really, where they're at in the Lord. In some weird way, they, they need a revival. They need a move of God. And so what the writer of Chronicles is doing, he's just saying, hey, guys, this is how you messed up, and this is how you can learn and not go back. I mean, think about in First Chronicles 9, we were just talking about the Israelites went into exile because they were unfaithful to God. And so obviously we want to learn from these situations so that when you come back into the land, you're not doing the same thing. So that's what we've been talking about up until this point. We obviously have been talking about the tribe of Benjamin. And one of the, the most well-known people from the tribe of Benjamin is Saul. And that's what we're going to talk about in First Chronicles 10. It says this, verse 1, the Philistines, they fought against Israel. And Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. This was really an Israeli, Israeli massacre. Kevin has up here on the screen. So here you have the Sea of Chinnereth, uh, the Sea of Galilee, right? Mount Tabor, Bethshan, Jabesh Gilead. We'll get into some of that. And then you have Endor and Shinem. But right, right around there, you have Mount Gilboa. Think about this. The Philistines, okay, in this region, okay, this is typically where they're going to be hanging out. They're coming over and on Mount Gilboa, the men flee and then they, they literally wipe out so many Israelis. It says in verse 2, the Philistines, they pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Saul's son, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. So three sons killed. Now, interesting enough, Kevin, if you'll go to 1 Chronicles 8, 33. Now, in our genealogy, which we've been doing, which we've been talking about, remember uh, that 1 first, uh, first Chronicles 8 is a longer chapter on the Benjamites. Now, now, look at, this should be the genealogy. So Nair fathered Kish. Kish fathered Saul. So that's Saul, King Saul. Saul then had uh, four sons, Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbal. And what you see here is, according to verse 2, Eshbal is not killed, correct? So in 1 Chronicles 2.10, it looks like either somehow he has survived. Crazy enough, can you go to 2 Samuel 2.8 for me, Kevin? Remember, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles they kind of partner each other. So I'm just trying to tie in all of these different loose ends. First Chronicle, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 2, 8. It says, Abner, son of Nair, commander of Saul's army, took Saul's son Ishbosheth and moved him to Manaheim. Okay? So, the son Ishbosheth, uh, it means man of shame. Thought, the man of shame could be, look, Eshbal, okay, the fourth son, and maybe may, may because he's absent from the battlefield. 
It's a thought. The name Ishbal actually means, uh, Ishbosheth, excuse me, means man of shame. Is that Ish, uh, Ishbal, which means man of shame. Anyway, either way you know this, there's three guys that have been killed. Uh, and then in verse 3, but I think when you're studying genealogy, you probably should reference some of those components. And so in verse 3, it says, when the battle intensified against Saul. Now remember, at this point, his sons are dead. At this point on Mount Gilboa, uh, the Israelites are dying on uh, in a massacre. So when it intensified, Saul, the archers found him and they severely wounded him. Saul looks to his armor bearer. Hey, draw your sword and run me through with it. In other words, I need you to kill me. Or these uncircumcised men will come in and torture me. Now, remember, the uncircumcised, you know, they're, they're designated non-Israelis. You know, the circumcision, remember, is a sign of, of a covenant with the Lord. It's interesting, right? Here you have Saul, the anointed one, <laughs> talking about the uncircumcised, all of a sudden talking about this as a sign of a covenant. Kind of, It just kind of feels a little bit like, is he going back to his grassroots right now? Is he not going back to his grassroots? Either way, he doesn't want to die and he doesn't want to be tortured from his enemies. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it. Why? Why wouldn't the armor bearer kill him? Do you remember this part of the story, Kevin? He didn't want to kill the anointing just like David hadn't wanted to kill right. him. He didn't want to do it. I'm not going to, you kid me? I'm not going to touch this guy. So then Saul took his sword and then he fell on it. And so what we would classify this as is suicide. Saul died actually killing himself. Now some would say, oh, it's courage. He killed himself because, you know, like, you know, in a battle, he, he didn't want to die with his enemies. But, you know, what I love about what MacArthur says, John MacArthur, is, yeah, but why not have courage like David did and see what happens? You know, David obviously modeled uh, for everybody else, like in the thick of things. David never bailed. David always went into the fight, except one time. And that's where he committed an affair. And then that's what led to the murder. I mean, all of these things. But I think the point is, and I think this is really unique is Saul didn't really ever trust the Lord, even, even in the battle. And so the suicide became, and I love what MacArthur said, and it's an ultimate expression of his faithfulness, faithlessness towards God and the moment in this life. Like nowhere, nowhere did Saul at that moment say, you know, God, I think you can get me out of this. You want to know why? Because there's a complete massacre here. Three sons are dead. It doesn't look good for him. He's concerned about being tortured. He's concerned about everything. And so he, he takes his own life. Kevin, can you go to 2 Samuel 17, verse 23, please? Scripture says in 2 Samuel 17, 23, when Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, set out for his house in his hometown. He set his affairs in order. So like he got everything ready. And then he hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. So very rarely in scripture do you have instances of people uh, going through suicide. In fact, can you go to 1 Kings King 16, verse 18? I'm not going here and trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to stir up any emotions that some of you have in the past. Uh, I just want you to understand and realize like, like when people get to that point of suicide, like it has truly become... Uh, um, like they can't get their focus off of their situation. And so in 1 Kings 16, 18, it says, When Zimri saw that the city was captured, he entered the city of the royal palace and he burned it down over himself. He died. Uh, I'll never forget, Rich, you remember our, our friend Mike Starr uh, in Richmond, California. He was our instigator, still is our instigator. And praise the Lord, he's totally fine. But 
he went in to, to burn down uh, a whole, uh, um, it was a storage unit. And he was planning on dying while he was sitting there. And praise God, God restored, pulled him out of that and has redeemed his life, uh, restored him. In fact, he's even going to cities now talking about the gospel. And the enemy's going to try to come in and say, your life is worthless. You're not, you don't amount to anything. And I just want to just say, if, if that's anybody even listening right now, if you even had a remote thought of suicide, I just want to speak against that. That's not, that's not the Lord. That's not the Lord's voice. That's the enemy telling you you're not worth it. And I, I just want to tell you, you need to hear this. Yes, you are. Even when Saul was on the battlefield, like he didn't think it, it's done. I have no hope. I'm just telling you guys, in today's context of the covenant, the new covenant that we have, you guys, we always, always have hope. In verse 5, when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died. Let me just tell you this. When suicide happens in America today or in another country, what people don't realize is the impact that that has on those around you. Because then those people begin to think, well, I'm not worthless. If they don't care enough to live to be around me, then what am I worth? And that's what happened to the armor bearer. The armor bearer is like, well, why am I alive? Then if, if, if the king is dead, that's my role. I, I'm out. So Saul and his three sons died and his whole house died together. Now, how many sons does he have? He's got four. So when we say his whole house, it could be an anticipation. Again, I can't prove this of his four son going to die. But at this point, at this context right now, not everybody has died. So obviously somewhere down the road, it is going to happen. And all I just want to just say about the suicide, I just want to wrap this up because I feel like it's a heavy topic. Like if you're dealing with this, I'm just going to say, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, would you break any individual that even has a thought of suicide, that even is thinking they're not valuable, that they don't have worth. And Father, I pray that you breathe life into them. Show them your purpose. Show them your plan in their life. Show them, Lord, above anything else, how much you love them. Father, may they sprout into a, a beautiful child of God, even from this day. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. In verse 7, here's what happens. It says, when all of the men of Israel in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, Look what happens. It says they abandoned their cities and fled. Like everybody is falling apart now. Suicide led to the armor bearer. The sons are already dead. Now it says all of them. And now you have to know that when, we're, when, when they're talking about all, naturally, you know, you, you might want to go to the total amount, which is like 3,000 men. But we do know that Abner survived in 2 Samuel 2. So we know that there's, it's not all of the men. It's in regards to all of the men that were with him. Fighting. So you, you kind of have to continue to have this perspective um, of what this looks like. Now, in verse 8, it says, of 1 Chronicles 10, verse 8, it says, The next day, okay, the next day after the horrific massacre for the Israelites, the Philistines, they came to strip the slain. In other words, hey, let's go pick up all the dead and let's clean house. And they found Saul and his sons dead on Mount Gilboa. And in verse 9, here's what they did. They stripped Saul. So they, they cleaned him of all of his stuff. And they cut off his head. They took his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news to their idols and their people. In other words, by the way, the king is dead. 
You spread the news and we cut off his head. It's kind of like this, it's almost like this mockery of sending a message, we're back in the game. And you got to remember, King Saul, according to First Corinthians, uh, Chronicles 10, like he was a, a, a head taller than everybody else. So like Saul was uh, like a powerful, strong man, and he's done. And in fact, they spread the good news, and look at this, to their idols and their people. <laughs> like the idols are going to be dancing or something, right? You know. And in verse 10, it says this, Then they put his armor, so they put the king Saul, they put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they hung his skull in the temple of Dagon. This is what's crazy, you guys. A hundred years earlier, according to Nelson's commentary, the Philistines, they captured the Ark of the Covenant a hundred years earlier, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. So it's just kind of like, here you have the enemies. They're, they're putting all of the, quote unquote, the Ark of the Covenant, or they're putting the, the king like in the face of their false god kind of crazy to me. So then in verse 11, when all of Jabesh Gilead heard of everything the Philistines had done. So when the Jabesh Gilead folks heard about Saul's death, heard about the sons that have died, heard about his head being cut off, heard about his skull now being placed in the temple of Dagon, this is what they did. It said, all of the brave men, they sent out and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. And then they brought them to Jabesh. So like, this wasn't like, you know, oh yeah, hey, we can describe it. I mean, it says when they sent the brave men, I'm guessing they had to go in and really do some kind of a stealth job. It's not like they're just going to leave these guys out to hang. So why, why, why would Jabeth Gilead actually do this? Like, what, what do they care about? Because Saul, if you remember this, in 1 Samuel 11, he helped Jabeth Gilead when they were crying out. So here you have folks from this community pouring back into, yes, yeah, strangely enough, uh, the dead body of Saul because he did that to them. And so now look what they did. It says they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and then they fasted seven days. Wow. Okay, so a couple things here. If they're burying the bones, one thing you need to know in 1 Samuel 31.12. Can you go to 1 Samuel 31.12? 1 Samuel 31.12, 31, it says this. All their brave men set out, journeyed all night, Retrieve the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shen. Okay, so right, that's where they're going. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. So all of the bodies of the, the, the boys and Saul, they're, they're burned. And then we know that's based on 1 Samuel 31. And then we know it says they took their bones and then they buried them under a tree in Jabesh. Okay, and then they enter into a period of mourning for seven days. Scripture says they fasted for seven days. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to finish up 13 and 14. I want to come back to the fasting component, okay? So Saul, it says in verse 13, this is why he died, okay? Saul, it says he died for a couple reasons. One, it says he died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord. Because it says he did not keep the Lord's word says he even consulted a medium for guidance. Scripture says, <laughs> says he consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So here you have three reasons of why Saul died. And then here's where it gets drastic. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. And you just hear kind of like, 
Wait, wait a Did you just say the Lord put him to death? This is pretty drastic. The Lord put him to death, but then who actually physically... How did, how did Saul die? By his own hand. So God allowed Saul, is what we're saying here, to kill himself. Because of his unfaithfulness, consulted a medium and did not inquire of the Lord. Can you go to Jeremiah 7, Kevin? Jeremiah 7, verse 13 for a second. Jeremiah 7, verse 13. Look at this. Now, because you've done all these things, this is the Lord's declaration. And because I have spoken to you time and time again, but you wouldn't listen. And I have called to you, but you wouldn't answer. Verse 14. What I did to Shiloh, I will do to the house that is called by my name, the house in which you trust, the place that I gave you and your ancestors. Verse 15. I will drive you from my presence, just as I drove out all of your brothers, all the descendants of Ephraim. And then verse 16. As for you, do not pray for these people. Do not offer a a cry or a prayer on their behalf and do not beg me for I will not listen to you. Honestly, you guys, it got to the point where this is what happened to Saul. God wasn't listening. And you want to know why? Because of this checklist of unfaithfulness, consulted a medium and did not inquire of the Lord. Now, here's what I have to make sure you understand. This is the old covenant. You know, some of us have become unfaithful to the Lord over the course of our time. Some of us have done something really dumb and you read a horoscope. I'm kind of serious. Some of you have gone to the, a, a witch and talked to us. I'm, I'm serious. And then maybe some of you never cried out to the Lord. Praise God. Jesus says, I forgive you. You can come to me. But in this case, the anointed turned his back against God and he's done. And now you have the transition, hallelujah, to the son of David. But as they're transitioning, this is where I want to I close up all of this. Because when you, when you look at this, you guys, here you have a, a king. Now remember, what was their plan? When you look at that painting, the plan for Samuel was, is we want a king. So like the Israelites wanted a king. Nothing worked. Evil, all, you get all this point. And so like all they've known is that their king is dead. There's a massacre her. The family's dead. His bodies are here. They go and grab him. Like they're like, what are we going to do? So like there's this period of mourning and fasting. I love what a lady named Kristen Fiola wrote. And she says, fasting prepares you for the works God has ordained for you. I want to say it one more time. Fasting prepares you for the works that God has ordained you, ordained for you. So now if you're an Israelite, there's so many layers to what fasting is. We're going to walk through seven things that I really believe are essential about why people would fast. But we're in a transition of of preparation. So like however you look at fasting, okay, I have always, always, always viewed fasting as a preparation. And we can talk about in what form and what that looks like. But I love this perspective and I love what John Piper says. Piper calls uh, fasting the path of pleasant pain. (laughs) It's kind of like, okay, God, I know I need to go through this process to get here. Now, if you would, I want you guys to start taking notes. And we've already written this up here, but I'm going to kind of walk you through this process of fasting. Now, just as a quick backdrop, and I don't say any of this reason uh, except to help paint a picture. You know, I feel like the Lord in my life has called and asked me to do fasting as a discipline. And guess what? I think he asks all of us. And in fact, if you go to Matthew 6, verse 16, again, I understand they're fasting differently, but I'm going to give you different layers of why people would fast. In Matthew 6, 16, it says, if you fast, just kidding, 
it says, whenever you fast, when you fast, don't be sad faced like the hypocrites. Kevin, whenever you hear the word when, that implies you're going to do it. It's not a, hey, this is an option here. When you fast, don't be sad faced like the hypocrites. Like, don't, don't, don't do it so everybody knows that you're fasting. But when you fast, and I think that's important, okay? That means we need to have this mentality of, oh yeah, I, of course I'm going to be fasting. Of course I'm going to be doing this. And so can I just tell you a couple things of why people would fast? And I love, this comes from Kristen Fiola, okay, on Faith Gateway. I really like how she simplified these things. Number one is, is that, you know, and it's not exclusive by any means, okay, you're going to preparing for ministry. Think about this, Jesus Christ, right? He spent 40 days in the wilderness before what, Rich? Before what did he do? 40 days before? Uh, well, before he came back and started his ministry. Before he started his ministry. So it was literally a 40-day prep before he started. Okay? Another layer of, of fasting could be you're doing it truly to seek God's wisdom. You know, Paul and Barnabas, if you go to Acts 14, verse 23. Uh, so you're doing this to prepare for ministry. You're doing this to seek God's wisdom. Acts 14, 23, it says, When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so if you're asking the Lord for wisdom about a, a decision for something, fast. Can I just tell you, like when I think fasting, I'm, I'm just going to just put it all on the bottom line. I'm talking about food here. Like I get it. People are like, well, what if I fast from Facebook or social media? I, those are all good things. In this context, they're talking about not fasting from social media. They're talking about food. There's something about not eating and you're like, oh no, I got to turn to the Lord. Like, that's what we're talking about here. Like, let's not soften this for the American culture. Now, look, somebody's going to say, well, my doctor's not going to allow me. You know, if you have health conditions, you can't do that. Okay. But if you don't, this is what we're talking about. Okay. Does that make sense? To prepare for ministry, to seek God's wisdom. And then here's another one. And this is the one we are talking about today with the Israelites to show grief. Like fasting actually implies grieving. Nehemiah in Jerusalem, in Nehemiah 1, right? What, what do you think about this? When Nehemiah hears Jerusalem's a mess, what does he do? Nehemiah 1 and 1 through 4 says he fasts. It says, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, he told me about Jerusalem. He told me about the remnant, that they had survived the exile. Praise God. But then he says the remnant in the province survived they're in great trouble and, dis and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned down. And then in verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Sometimes when you have um, uh, a death in the family, you know, in cultures, we, we've been interacting with a, a country in, in Africa. They lost one of their great leaders. They called for a seven-day uh, a period of mourning, fasting and praying, because you want to show grief before the Almighty. So why do we fast? Well, these are a couple of the reasons. Here's a couple other reasons. Okay, number four is that you want to, and I love this one. This is really fun. You want to seek deliverance or protection. One of those layers could be to seek uh, deliverance or protection. Think about this. Ezra, Kevin, go to Ezra 8, verse 21. Ezra 8, verse 21. Ezra dedicated a corporate fast and he prayed for a safe journey. Probably one of my favorite things. Look at this. In Ezra 8, verse 21. I proclaimed a fast by the Hava River. 
so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us, our children and all of our possessions. Verse 22. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry <laughs> to protect us from enemies during the journey. Like, oh, I'm afraid to ask. Let's fast. <laughs> And the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his greater anger is against all who abandon him. Verse 23, so we fasted and pleaded with our God about this and he granted our request. I'd rather go to God than the king if you know almighty God is with you. Now think about this, you guys. Here they are. This is a crazy picture. They're on their way from Babylon to, to, to Jerusalem, nine, 900 miles. That's crazy. Lord, we seriously need your help. So in order to seek deliverance and protection, are you willing to give up some things so the Lord would just truly see your heart? I love this picture. Okay, number five. Okay, number five, part of the fasting process. It could be to repent. Can you go to Jonah 3.10, Kevin, for me? Jonah 3.10, it says this. You know, the king of Nineveh, right? He sat in dust. Do you remember this? Then, Then God saw their actions that they had turned their, from their evil ways. So God relented from their disaster he had, he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. Why? Because the king called for fasting. Like God saw their actions, and the king actually repented of their sins. How crazy is that? By order of the king and his nobles, we cannot eat or we cannot drink water. Oh, God, we need you to move in America. And yet then we go out and gorge ourselves with pizza and barbecue and tacos and queso. Praise God. I love all those things. But how bad do you want to see a move of God? I just think we see incredible disciplines in Scripture. And one of those is to repent of the sins in our own country and fast from food and water. Number six. I like this one. This one's a lot more positive and upbeat to gain victory. You know, the Israelites, they lost 40,000 men. Go to Judges 20, verse 26. Judges 20, verse 26, it says this. The whole Israelite army went to Bethel where they wept and they sat before the Lord because they knew that they had just got their butts kicked. 40,000 guys gone and they fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Lord, we don't, this isn't looking good. We need, we've lost a lot of guys. Then don't eat. Fast before the Lord and cry out to the Lord. Like how desperate do you need to be in order to see a move? And then the very last thing, why, why would you fast? Well, you're like, oh, I don't need to do any of these things. Then praise God. Do it to worship Him. The 40 days of fast for me when I was getting prepared for a time of Revive Asheville, I loved it because honestly, I, I just wanted to be in his presence. I lost a lot of weight and I know I had a whole lot to lose and I lost a lot of weight. And yet at the same time, look what Anna did, an 84 year old old lady in Luke 2. She fasted before the Lord because she just wanted to be in his presence. You know, when we see this list of why we should fast, I think the problem is, is here's what's happened. The enemy comes in. And Fiola, Kristen, Kristen Fiola writes this, whether it's fear, ignorance, or rebellion, it, it's almost like none of those are an option because one of these three drive us. Well, I'm afraid what this is going to look like. No, I've never heard of fasting. or I'm totally not doing that. But Bill Bright probably has, in my opinion, the book that changed my life about fasting. 
And I love this. And this is how I want to close. Bill Bright said, fasting truly restores your heart back to the first love. He says it's really to humble yourself and it reveals really where you're at spiritually. And what it does is it begins when you're fasting, it begins to quicken the word in your heart. It increases your prayer life. And here's what I really love. It brings about a personal revival. Fasting brings about a personal revival. Doesn't cost anything. And yet it costs everything. I think that when the Israelites saw that their king was gone, And they knew that they were awaiting the new king. They fasted. And I think if you take that prophetically, we're awaiting the king's return. Maybe the church should start fasting to get ready. All right, guys. First Chronicles 10. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.